Hello and welcome to the December instalment of the Shameless Book Club. This month we read the New York Times number one bestseller, The Paper Palace by Miranda Cowley Heller. The story's protagonist is Elle Bishop, a 50-something woman in love with two men, her husband and her childhood best friend. As the blurb of the book describes, so begins a story that unfolds over 24 hours and across 50 years. What is Elle's big secret? The one that has kept her tethered to, but always arm's distance from, her best friend Jonas. And which man will she choose in the end? A quick trigger warning for those who haven't read The Paper Palace yet. This book does describe instances of child sexual abuse and may be triggering for some listeners. Before we get into answering any of the big questions about this very meaty, very incredible book, I need to introduce you all to my co-hosts. I am joined, of course, by the marvellous Zara McDonald and Annabelle Lee. I didn't get marvellous. Hello. No, we are both marvellous. Uh, okay, good, good. You're good. Right together as marvellous. the neediness before we even get in. Please compliment me. <laughs> Your exceptional Annabelle Lee. I am, of course, Michelle Andrews. Guys, we are going to start this episode as we always do with the book club. We need to introduce the author of this book. Her name is Miranda Cowley Heller. And boy, is she a good writer. Yeah. Does anybody else feel like her last name should be Crowley Heller? It just rolls off the tongue a little bit better. Interesting. (laughs) I mean, I never thought of it, but sure. Yeah, well, that was the first thing that I had to say, (laughs) so a good point to start on. What I found really interesting in doing a bit of a deep dive into Miranda Cowley Heller is that her resume feels very... Intimidating. ...fitting for the fact that this is an incredible book. For example, she worked as a ghostwriter, book doctor and associate editor at Cosmo before she became a senior vice president and head of drama series at HBO. So you've got kind of like that writing background, but also you've got that real ability to craft a narrative and know what tells a good story with HBO. For those confused about the job title of book doctor as well, it's different to a copy editor or a copy writer. A book doctor is kind of responsible for looking at fiction books and making sure there is consistency in the storylines, the big ideas and the themes really sing through and that the writing is pacey enough to keep people in. So that is her job. That's what she's an expert at, which explains a lot about this book, right, Annabelle? I googled what a book doctor is. (laughs) Did we not all? (laughs) And I was like, Michelle, I feel like you'd be a great book doctor. Every time I come onto these episodes, you're always like, oh, yeah, this like, could this be improved. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will take a gig if anyone's willing to offer me one. I would love that as a job. Talk to me. What else did you find about <laughs> Miranda? not good enough, <laughs> What else did you find about Miranda yes. Kelly Heller? So Miranda also comes from a family of literary geniuses, I guess, which would be quite intimidating. So she comes from a very established literary family, which would, yes, no doubt be a bit daunting. And it might explain why her first novel, which is this, this novel was published a little later in life at the mm. age of 59, I think. So she told The Guardian, I remember my father, who's a book editor, yelling at me when I was 10 about a term paper I'd written. He'd go, cut, 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 much like you, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> she said, that's the milieu I grew up with. And because there are a lot of writers who are successful in the family, I was like, if I can't do it well, I'm not going to try. Mm. But apparently it was writing poetry that actually broke the dam, she says, that was the family pressure she felt constrained by. So she said, it changed changed everything for me. It was suddenly writing from a dreamier place, finding out what was buried beneath instead of purposefully digging. It's really interesting because I think most people who have siblings or even just family members who are quite good at things would totally relate to that. It's like, well, if I'm not even going 
going to do it nearly as well as the people around me and mm. the people that I love. What is the point? Now, whether or not that's a healthy attitude or not is another conversation entirely, but it's a very relatable one. As you said as well, Annabelle, Miranda was 59 when this book came out, her first novel, and I feel like it's been such a trend in the, the books that we've read recently for debut novelists to really wait to later in life to release the books that have sort of been ruminating in their minds for ages. And I just feel like it makes these books so rich and so mm. strong because they are coming to it with so much wisdom and so much experience. You're just probably more clever. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think she agrees with that. She did an interview with the Irish Examiner where they asked her about, you know, writing your first fiction novel in your late 50s. And she said, it's been unbelievable having spent so much of my life thinking, am I ever going to do this? Then actually writing it. I put it out there thinking, well, I like it, but I don't know if anyone else will get it. So for it to sell was a dream come true. To wait this long, to be in my 50s and to have finally done this, there is so much more meaning attached to it for me. I just love it so much. I love that some of the authors we've been talking about have been more mature authors lately. I think it's absolutely tantamount to the books that they've put out, that they've had that life experience that you touched on, Zara. I also found another really interesting interview that Miranda did with Booktopia It wasn't the most highbrow interview. It was basically a QA and a back and forth, a very simple one. But Booktopia's journalist asked her, what strongly held belief did you have at 18 that you do not have now? And Miranda responded that life is black and white, that there are right answers. And I think that explains a lot of this book, kind of muddling our way through the answers that aren't right and aren't wrong and the decisions that aren't right but aren't necessarily wrong either. Yeah, like those long stretches of grey area. Mm. I also find it exciting that HBO have already bought the rights to this book at auction. Yeah, she did put on the record though that she is waiting or in an interview I read with her recently that she's waiting to hear back from them on a new draft she's written for the pilot. So it's meant to be a mini series but she said she's going to work on that if it goes forward. As we know, it is a very fickle world that adaptation one whether or not even the rights for a book can be bought everything can be ready to go and it can fall apart at the last second but I think given how popular this book is and also how vividly it's written like how much I could visualize it when I was reading it it just makes so much sense for it to be made into a miniseries and actually sorry as well she acknowledged that she's like because I've worked in tv for so long I wrote it imagining it being made mm. later as well. Yeah, surely you would visualise everything that you're writing about because you have been in the TV and film industry for so, so very long. It makes a lot of sense that that was so easily translatable. It's also not a surprise that she grew up in Cape Cod and actually had a kind of camp family style resort similar to the one that she writes about in the book. This is clearly something that isn't just plucked from fiction. There are elements of actual fact and her own lived experience throughout it. Another fact, she's married to a British man, yeah. just like Peter. Exactly. And it's probably why Peter felt so vivid too, but I'm Mm. sure we will get there in a second. Thank you for that easy segue, Zara McDonald, because it is time to talk about the main characters, the characters that stuck with us, the characters we didn't quite warm to in the Paper Palace. Annabelle, let's start with you. What character did you love the most? I loved so many of them. I feel like the way that an author crafts their characters hugely impacts like the quality of the book and its ability to grip audiences Mm. entirely because when they're not done well I often find myself jumping out of the book and like not really understanding that I need to be in it to understand the whole book but I really thought that Elle was my standout and specifically Elle and Anna together they were the best very sweet so you had a younger sibling in Elle and you had the older more assertive sibling in Anna and it's kind of the dynamic that doesn't quite work harmoniously as children but as adults when they like 
had to work through their trauma together, it really tightened them as a pair and I loved that. I love that scene where Elle's going back to Memphis and she dropped into Rosemary's house and Rosemary was like, oh, you two never really got along, yeah. did you? And she just like looked at her straight and was like, I grieve her every single day. I yeah. was like, that is so sad because you just like be so mad at anyone trying to lay judgment on a dynamic that changes over the course of years when you're siblings. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we all have sisters sitting around this table and this book I think communicated the rougher aspects but also the more beautiful aspects of sistership or sisterhood that I've experienced in any book. This certainly rang true for the dynamic I feel between me and my sisters and how that has changed as we have grown up and I agree with you Annabelle. Elle and Anna as a duo made up one of my favourite kind of character storylines. I feel like I didn't get enough or as much of Anna as I wanted though. Really? Yeah I think because so often and, and I know maybe this was like really paramount to the narrative that she wasn't always there and that Elle was left alone and that's why things certainly happened. But I was like, I wanted to get to know her more. Like I got to know her through the dynamic of Elle, but I didn't feel like I got to know her alone. I'm also kind of desperate, and I don't know if I missed this in the book, to work out whether Elle actually got there and was able to tell her what happened before she died. I got the impression she did. I was waiting for a specific moment where they explained what happened at the hospital bed. Mm, Yeah. I kind of agree with you though, because certain comments were made about Anna, like her relationship with her body and food and stuff like that. And I was like, I kind of want to know more about this. I think the thing for me when I wasn't entirely sure whether she got to Anna or not was she was still consumed by so much shame in the years after Anna died that made me think that maybe Maybe she didn't because Mm. would she be approaching life in the same way if she spoke to her best friend about this and got everything out? I don't know. And that's what I found really hard not knowing. Yeah, interesting. I loved Anna, loved Elle, but I think my favourite character from this entire book was actually Peter. So Elle's husband, the British man who just seemed to have an absolute heart of gold. I found it really interesting that when I went to go read some critic reviews and reviews on Goodreads, there was this thread of negativity or negative feedback from readers saying that there were no likable characters in the paper palace. For example, one of the quotes from a review in the Canberra Times read, the characters are shallow, insufferably entitled and morbidly narcissistic. And I read stuff like that being like, has anyone met Peter in this book? I felt like Peter was a shining light of being a good guy, like a decent human and really loving his wife and loving his children with almost every cell in his body. Did I get a bad read on Peter for anyone to think he was morbidly narcissistic? Peter was delightful, but I also just take issue with that entire quote about all the characters. Like they were deeply complex characters, but I wouldn't say they were like incredibly narcissistic. They were just like deeply traumatised people who had been through a lot, who therefore made decisions based on that. Peter was like the golden retriever of the novel, right? He very much felt like this guy who I loved how quickly he would turn around and acknowledge that he did something wrong or how lovable he seemed to be and how loving he seemed to be. But I loved Jonas as well. Like I loved them both. And I think it was so good in this novel. It was so brilliant that Peter was so lovable and so loyal and such a good husband And even still with all of that, he was never going to have the bond that Jonas has with Elle. And I was like, to me, that became very clear that it didn't matter who Elle found in her life. She found one of the greatest guys she could have and she still didn't feel like it was right. It makes it really hard to root for someone, which we'll talk about later in the episode. But Peter being this perfect guy was not 
important for Elle at all. And I think that was the weakness I found in Fault Lines, the book we did earlier this year about an affair in a marriage in that the husband was this kind of prick who had already cheated on his wife before. And I said in that episode, it would have been a more challenging read for me if I really loved the husband and didn't want her to be unfaithful. This was that book for me. I feel like this book, The Paper Palace, nailed that in that I was so torn. I do disagree with you though, Zara, on loving Jonas. I loved Jonas as a boy, as a teenager, as a young man. I did not love Jonas as a fully fledged adult. I feel like when I read those quotes like that one from the Canberra Times about people being shallow or entitled or narcissistic, adult Jonas was that for me. I found myself quite angry at him at different points in the book and I want to read out one passage from page 327 that just made me feel like even though Elle at certain points was not a good wife, Jonas was continually a bad husband in my view. There's this passage that reads, whoa, Gina says, what's up with that? She's in a huff because we're laughing at her, Jonas says. About a child dying? Of course not. She was being tone deaf. So what, Gina presses. Something she used to say when we were kids, Jonas says, it wouldn't translate. I'm sure I can keep up, Gina bristles. Whatever, you two can have your secret code. I just like leaving your wife out of interactions like that, purposely having that dynamic with your childhood best friend and making your wife feel out of the picture, like a third wheel, like a bit of an idiot, made me really not like Jonas. I feel like I was supposed to love him, but I saw the way he treated his wife throughout this book as a 50-something and thought, you dickhead, you asshole, you're making her feel so left out of your own marriage. Yeah, I think though, if I was going to have that opinion about Jonas, I'd have to have it with everyone in the book. And I think like, I think they all treated each other terribly and there were reasons for that. I was rooting for Jonas. Like I was. And I think maybe I was rooting for him because I felt like that was what was going to happen at the end anyway. And I felt like there were so many little like moments throughout the novel, which maybe we'll get to in a second where I thought, yeah, I don't think there's a world where she can't pick him after that. So maybe I was like convincing myself Mm. that it was right. But I also thought there was something so decisive about him. Like he so clearly wanted her and loved her. And I think this might be really silly, but there was like this scene that really moved me when they were on the kayak, I think, and and they were teenagers and Elle was telling him what had happened to her. And I just felt like this overwhelming sense of like when you find someone you feel safe with to tell the worst things that have ever happened to you, like that is just like an incredible bond that I don't think anyone else can penetrate. And I felt a lot of love for him and for them after that scene. And I was like that she feels so safe here and that he feels so protective of her is very meaningful to me. Yeah, I agree. I think that his character as a kid, which was incredible, he was incredibly mature. He was lovely. Really like dictated the way that I felt about him as an adult, even though I agree with you, I didn't like the way he treated Gina but that interaction with Gina although it made me uncomfortable the love story between Elle and Jonas was central to me so it kind of like yeah it's like everything maybe else. that scene had to happen I do feel for Gina like mm. Gina got the absolute roughest run here her roots kept getting spoken about as well she had all this regrowth <laughs> yeah. or like ratty hair I'm like poor fucking Gina I did have a thought I mean we're jumping ahead a little bit At one point, I did think, wow, Peter and Gina get along very well. Could we do a little switcheroo couple swap here and everything's fine? I I thought that as well. (laughs) What about Wallace? Because I think Wallace was probably one of the more vivid characters for me. I loved Wallace's dialogue, even though some of it was like incredibly problematic. Mm. And she was tough and she was sometimes incredibly infuriating. But the charm between her and Peter, the banter between her and Peter, I thought was like wonderful. And I I kind of appreciated her like hold no prisoners approach to life. Like she really did not suffer fools. She really said what she thought. And I think 
a written character is so rich when they're written in that way. I agree. I weirdly loved Wallace. She was so interesting to me. And like, even though I thought that she was incredibly flawed, her little sassy comments and lines were just so entertaining. And also I feel like her character really highlighted how trauma can breed ugliness in a in a strong person like she still had this strength but she was clearly still vulnerable in a way yeah I agree I thought Wallace was impeccably written I could Mm. see her uh, she felt so realistic to me sure like maybe someone could look at it and be like she's not very likable do all characters need to be likable to be lovable because I found her lovable Mm. yes I've had a real warm spot for this woman who yes was misogynistic and said some awful things and didn't behave the best, but she was realistic of a woman from her time, her era, who had been through what she had been through. I could see her. And on the flip side to that was the character of Elle's dad. You know, in comparison to Wallace, who was like very strong and quite brash and would say what she thought, I found Elle's dad to be totally pathetic, if I'm going Mm. to be honest here. Like I despised his character through this book because I was like, you are so weak. Mm. Like you can make one mistake once, pick a woman over your children and realise later that it was the dumbest thing that you've ever done. But to do that continuously and to surround yourself with awful people and marry them and pick them over your children, I just found completely unforgivable. It's like he was taking taking his kids as fools, like they wouldn't ever catch on to the fact that he didn't care enough to stay and like pick them first. It was so annoying. Yeah, he was like a like floppy little fish that didn't have a spine. I was just so fucking over him by the end of the book. I do want to talk about one gripe that I have with this book in that I felt like there were just too many characters, full stop. I actually got really confused at one point when I closed the final page and kind of put the book aside. I had left this book thinking that the story of the boy with the snake forcing the girls to feed at baby mice. I thought that was Conrad and that had stuck in my mind as being the first instance of Conrad being a creep and me finding him disgusting and being really wary of him. It was only when I went back through the book and prepared for this book club episode, I realised that was a member of Joanne's family, that family of Dwight, Nancy and Waldo. And it was Waldo with the snake who was crying over the I don't know, the hamster and all that type of stuff. And I just felt like going back, I'm like, why were these characters even in in the book in the first place? Like for a book that's 400 pages long, it's a meaty book. There's a lot of big themes. There's a lot to keep track of. There's a lot of names. Did we really need another creepy young guy? Wouldn't the story have been served more by Conrad? Because Conrad could have easily been that guy with the snake feeding the baby mice to it. And that would have been a great story to tell with him. Why did we need Dwight, Nancy and Waldo when I think all of those characters were already served by other characters? Like already the grandmother was that lovely older figure they had in their life. What did these three characters add? I think for me it was important that they went to, whenever they were meant to visit their dad, there was another family that they went to. Like that felt like a really important part of the story to me. So I understand what you're saying in that. Like, Yeah, I don't even really remember their names when you're saying them out loud. And maybe that every place they went it wasn't like fully safe even though there was like good parents there but there was never like that complete and utter sense of safety whenever they were in a quote-unquote home so I think it still played a part but then I do agree with you because I'm like too many names even at the barbecue at like Dixon's house in the last few pages I'm like okay whoa too many people here I forgot who half did you guys confuse the snake story or was that just me no no no. I totally forgot I've forgotten about it yeah I also think if we're going to consider like geography and landscape key characters in this book I really found that 
there was no real differentiation between the writing of London and New York and I couldn't place them in different cities. Like I couldn't see it and I was like maybe it wasn't that clever to write cities that are hard to differentiate from each other on paper. Like maybe it would have been easy for me to kind of place them in the story if they were completely different cities. I could see the camp more than I could see the main city. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't until the dialogue really made it clear that she had like come back to New York yes. that I was like, okay, she's moved now. Exactly. Yeah. Guys, after the break, we're going to talk a lot about a character that funnily enough didn't even come up in that section. We need to talk a lot about Conrad and his role in this story. But before we get there, let's hear a word from today's sponsor. All right, guys, I said it before the break. It's time to talk about Conrad and the damage he wreaked upon basically every young girl who came into his path in this book. Zara, where do we even begin? Where would you like to begin this conversation? I think I felt terrified from Conrad at the beginning of the book. Like Mm. I think that he was written in such a way, in such a menacing way that I felt deeply uncomfortable whenever he came onto the page and I just kind of had this deep sense of foreboding around him. And I think when I think about the trauma aspect of this book and the fact that Conrad was so awful and Elle just lived in so much shame for so long, it just made me think so much about intergenerational trauma and like the impact our parents have on us and all of those kinds of things. And also the fact that his actions made her such a secretive person and the fact that she was always having to consider what her voicing her experience would do to the people in her life, like her mother. Like she didn't want to ruin her mother's life because everything she'd been through, that was what was most heartbreaking. There was also this real omnipresent reminder for Elle and when Anna was around Anna that the way they behaved had a direct correlation with the way Conrad behaved in that if they spoke to him nastily, he would be nasty to them or if they kind of chided him for his behaviour, it would make everything worse. And I think that was a subtle element of this story but a really powerful one to make women feel responsible for the behavior of the men around them and I think this is where the complicated nature of Wallace really enters the fray right because there were so many times in this book where Wallace a woman who was a survivor of this stuff herself would victim blame there was like this line in the book where she was talking to Elle about trying to invite Conrad sailing or something and she said you know maybe if you and Anna were nicer to Conrad he wouldn't behave this way and then there was like another instance where Conrad punched Anna in the face and then the last line of the scene was Wallace saying she probably deserved it Mm. and that sense of sort of intergenerational trauma intergenerational shame and how shame really carries through generations was so present here because I was like Wallace is so full to the brim of shame that she victim blames everyone around her because she probably victim blames herself and that has to have an impact on the shame that lives within Elle. And that has to have something to do with what her mother Nanette told her there's this recurring line that the mothers keep telling their daughters like x behavior makes you an unbecoming woman yeah and that's just so telling of how everything in this book unfolds yeah i do want to bring up one of the key criticisms that has been leveled at miranda cowley heller by critics in newspapers on goodreads what have you and i want to get your thoughts on it i'm going to read out the eighth most popular review on goodreads specific (laughs) (laughs) but i want to give an example because there are six thousand written reviews of this book Mm. This is the eighth most popular. So I want to make it very clear before I read it out. I have not plucked some niche commentary that nobody got behind this. had hundreds of likes behind it on Goodreads and I want to read it to you. 
This book disturbs me in ways that I didn't know a book could. The sex, the emotional abuse, the parental abuse that goes on is one thing. The physical abuse of children and the lack of parental love is a completely different thing. More disturbing than all the above is the fact that this book has been rated so highly across the board. It gives me pause to think of the society we are becoming when this book is rated so highly. I'm not talking about the style of writing or the development of characters, etc., I'm talking about what is acceptable in our society if this is the type of reading people enjoy. I will not finish this book. I will move on. She gave it one star. As I said, that had hundreds of likes. Lots of people on Goodreads are angry that any instance of child sexual abuse has been described in a book. And I've got to say I was so perplexed and stunned when I read this because surely we cannot get to a place as a society where grim dark, awful things cannot be written about. Surely it is important as long as it is done in a certain way. These stories are told because they are the lived reality of so many people across the world. Yeah, I don't understand that kind of criticism. I think I would need it to be fleshed out a tiny bit more. But on surface level or, you know, reading that review as it's written, I'm like, I just don't understand that. How do we have conversations about anything if these things aren't written about? Also the focus on parenting being terrible. I'm like, the parents weren't perfect by any stretch, but they weren't awful parents. These are parents who have had really terrible things happen to them. And that has to influence how they are as adults. And that has to influence how they are as parents. Like if we live in a world where we expect people to grow up and rid themselves of the trauma that they experience when they're children, like what kind of world is that? It's just completely unrealistic. Of course, it's going to filter into their parenting. Yeah, no, I am baffled by that review. And it's it's the unrestrained way that Miranda told this story that makes this story so good and special and unique. Well, it's also powerful. I think you, you need the details sometimes mm. to understand where the shame comes from. And if we expect authors to tell these stories without the gruesome, difficult, traumatic details, how are we supposed to understand the very, very real shame that victims of child sexual abuse or victims of sexual assault go through? Without those descriptions, we don't really understand the trauma necessarily. I think it is a crucial, difficult, yes, traumatic, yes, but crucial ingredient into crafting a powerful story. Do you think there's also an element in that review that is a bit critical of strong women maybe making choices that are more selfish than like your typical woman would? I put that in inverted commas. Yeah, I think it sort of reads to me. And again, we're probably skipping ahead. But the fact that Elle did pick Jonas and put herself first in that scenario was seen as terrible parenting. Mm. When we were told earlier in the book, we were told by the author earlier in the book that whatever happened, Peter would be a really good dad and that this would be a civil breakup. Like Mm. we were told that, that was fed to us and we knew that, yes, it's not going to be a comfortable experience for the kids, but the kids will still be loved and the kids will still be okay. There was a line in another review, Mish, in the Sydney Morning Herald that was actually levelled at Elle. And I want to read it to you guys because the reviewer described Elle like this. She can get a little irritating in her highly strong self-absorption. Now, in the context of the trauma we're talking about here, I found that a really interesting throwaway line. Firstly, The book is from Elle's perspective and exists over the course of 24 hours when she's really deciding who she wants to be with for the rest of her life. Of course, it's going to be a bit self-absorbed. Like that is the crux of the book. But secondly, 
highly strong is interesting when we're talking about people who are survivors of trauma. Like mm. it's just too throwaway for me. It's really interesting. I mean, I'm trying to self-analyse because I would say that the three women sitting at this table doing this podcast are the first women to point out arrogance, narcissism, self-absorption in people when we see it. I, I did not it, no. once think that I, anyone in this book was like maybe slightly narcissistic, but not in a way that I found off-putting or n- even notable. I think it's the first thing I noticed in a character and I didn't notice it here at all. I also didn't notice the highly strong thing. I thought she was tortured inside yeah. about this decision. Not highly strong. Yeah. Like if you read this book from start to finish, you would see that Elle was constantly thinking about how her actions would affect the people around her and the people that she loved. And constantly, start to end. Constantly talking about Peter. Constantly mm. referencing the fact that she is in love with Peter and she loves him and he's a great husband and thinking about all the ways that he is marvellous towards her. It's like we're reading different books to the <laughs> critics. That's what's really interesting that when you look at the reviews of this book, people are either giving it five stars or one star and there's not much in between. Yeah. I want to talk to you both. We're going to put the trauma to a side and talk about the scene that I could not stop squealing at in my head on the beach. <laughs> I knew you were going to talk about this. Can we talk about this? When Elle was having digital sex with Jonas on the beach when there were all these people around and her husband and Jonas's wife were in the water was one of the most scandalous sex scenes I have ever read in a book, full stop. I loved it, but I was also equally stressed by it. I was like, no, stop, but I keep going. so stressed by it. Also, as is like maybe the mechanics of my brain, but I was like sitting there the whole time trying to work out exactly how this could happen in such a way where they could be hidden. No, yeah. I could see it. I, I could understand it. I couldn't really like, I was like, surely it just looks sus. No matter what happens, it still looks a tiny bit sus. It was stressful, but well-written, I think. Very yeah, well-written. I think she writes sex impeccably well. And then yeah. I felt so squeamish when Peter wanted to have sex with her immediately oh. after and she had, like had to try and dodge all of his advances. I know. <laughs> Deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> this did make me question cheating as a concept though. Like do we ever feel like cheating is understandable? Do we ever give more generosity to the people who are cheating when we consider stories like this? And I think maybe we need to. I don't think it is ever something I will do in my life. I certainly hope it is something I never do in my life. But I did not feel anger at Elle for cheating, which is pretty masterful of Miranda Cowley Haller. I felt a lot of sympathy and a lot of is confliction even a word? I felt a lot of confliction. It should be if it's not. I I totally agree with you. I think as we get older anyway, I feel like I'm entering a phase where there is more grey area with a Mm. lot of different things. And I think this just didn't feel like a cheating story to me. Like if I was to describe this book to somebody, I wouldn't even think to describe it as infidelity, to be totally honest with Mm. you. It was like literally a woman trying to decide what to do with her life Mm. and who's been through the ringer trying to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, it is time to talk about our general thoughts on the book, what we thought of the ending, how we felt when we closed that final page. Zara, talk to me about any week. Did you have any weaknesses at all for this book? I'm trying to think. Maybe there was a line in this New York Times review that I read that was written as follows. Rather than working in the service of the story, the accumulation of so many minor characters and the highly specific detail of everything from Elle's grandmother's estate in Guatemala to her stepfather's best friend's farm in Vermont suggests a faithful <laughs> factual recounting whether or not they have anything to do with Hella's real life. Yeah. I read that and I was like, yeah, it's a good point. There was such specific detail sometimes that, yeah, what was this stuff pulled from her life because it's so specific? But in my mind I was also like, oh, I don't know if I want it all, all the time. Yeah. I don't know if I can handle it all, all the time. I also think one of the great strengths of this book, and this is a really personal one, 
is it is so interesting to me that the work, like the careers of basically the three main characters were made so little of. Like we knew Peter was a financial journalist. I only realised that Jonas was a painter like way too late in the book. I don't even really know what Elle did for work and I was like I am always interested in work and career and how it defines identities and this just had such a small part to play. And it is really a credit to how beautiful the story was that that wasn't even a part of their identities. I felt embarrassed when I was prepping for this episode. I'm like, I don't even know what Elle does. She did a PhD at some point, maybe. But like, like we don't know anything about her in that sense. And it's like, how strong must this character be for us as three women growing up in a world where we're told a career is often everything, everything. Mm. And it really wasn't in this case. Like she was so complex outside of that. Great point, Zara McDonald. Well done. I did not realise that until you just said it just now. The only weakness that I... I could think of, and this was a bit of a stretch, was that I really wanted to know more about how Peter felt about Elle and Jonas's bond and their relationship. I think Mm. there was a point in the book where Miranda just jumped straight from Peter and Elle's marriage to the present day. And that was probably for a reason for pacing, I guess, book doctor, tell me if that's correct. (laughs) (laughs) But I wanted to know whether throughout the period where we didn't get any narrative, whether Peter was ever a bit sus on their relationship or felt any sort of jealousy or insecurity. Yeah, that is such a good question. I agree. I think we could have gotten more maybe of the machinations of Peter's thinking around that friendship. Like it's a very complicated, incredibly close friendship. Surely he had some interesting thoughts about it. I have a critique that's semi-similar to yours, Zara. I think in most parts, 80% of the book, the writing was gorgeous. Like, for example, one line that stood out to me was Nimbus clouds float past pregnant with rain. Like the way that Miranda Kelly Heller can describe things is such a talent and such an art form. But sometimes that talent, I think, crossed the line into being overly florid and And a little bit irritating. Like I I did find myself skipping passages about describing the grass or the pond or whatever, because I was like, I don't give a shit. I totally, it's a hard one, right? Because in many ways you can argue it's one of her biggest strengths the way that she wrote or writes but in other elements of the book I was like oh I just want to get to the characters and the people in the story like I know the landscape is probably meant to be a huge part of this but I just want to get to the stuff that I care about but again like the metaphor of that ring and it being the Mm. thing that Jonas gave her but also the thing that Peter saved her from was really interesting there was one scene where Elle was having a conversation with Jonas about that ring and he said, like, I'm the ring guy, not Peter. And Elle makes this comment where she says, Jonas is animal, Peter is mineral, and I need a rock. Yeah. And I just, like, read that and I was like, fuck, that's very beautiful. Yeah. But also, again, I was like, you're never choosing the mineral. You're not – she's See, she was I never, thought she would. No, I was like, the way that this is being set up, I'm just like – at every point and it's stupid because Miranda Kelly Heller says that she didn't decide until the last two pages who Elle was going to pick but there was another line which really stood out to me when Elle's walking down the aisle to Peter and she says I wonder if he would love me if he could see inside my head the pettiness the dirty linen of my thoughts the terrible things I have done Mm. and I was like Elle has to end up with someone who she's not thinking about that with who she feels completely free and completely open with and not worried about would he love me if he saw all of me? My stupid basic little heart wanted her to stay with the husband. I'm not going to no, lie. No, I think I'm the basic one for wanting Jonas, oh, like the childhood sweetheart. I don't know. I, I think I was so desperate in those final two pages. And given Miranda has acknowledged this, I'm guessing what she was wrangling with was, is Elle going to go out and meet Jonas or is Elle going to sit down on that bed and tell her husband what happened to her? Or are they going to go for a swim and she'll finally let him know what happened to her as a child? I was just so desperate for her to let her husband in because I felt like... Like Peter loved her in a way that 
was so healthy and so nourishing and so great for the both of them and their children that if she had just broken down that wall, he would have been fine with it. Mm. And I was inc- I was sad. I texted Zara as soon as I finished this book to be like, fuck, she picked Jonas. And Zara's like, I know, how brilliant. And I was like, no, I, <laughs> I really, really wanted Peter. Yeah. Like I was very invested in Peter because I felt like he was such a brilliant guy. I didn't know who I was rooting for. Like throughout the whole book, I felt like she should have ended up with Peter because he was like, they loved each other and they had a family together but I just couldn't imagine a world where Elle picked Peter but was constantly thinking about how much she loved Jonas and how strong that love was like that just did not seem sustainable it's deeply unfair like it is so deeply unfair to Peter the entire story is and that's you can't get finger banged on a beach and then go back to your husband (laughs) you can't it's just the whole thing is unfair it was Mm. always going to be and that's such a shame of the book that there was like not going to be winners in every element yeah do you think it was a weakness of the book because one thing in my head I'm like if she picks Jonas I need to see how the fallout is handled like I genuinely need to understand her breaking it to Peter or how you breach that when it's your best friend and you're both married. A little, little part of me when she picked Jonas, I was like, it's a little bit of a coward's way out to be like, she picks the really difficult option. Anyway, bye, book done. It's like, wait, wait all both, the mess. Both felt difficult. Like, yes, there was mess with divorce and children and how to break that news, but what about the mess of trying to recut someone out of your life when you've been trying to do it five or six times over the course of your life? Like, how do you do that? How do you explain to Jonas after finally telling him that you love him and that, yes, you'll love him more than anyone else, that you're going to decide to deny that? Like, how do you do that? For some reason, I feel like I would have been more heartbroken reading the Peter breakup scene, which is why I'm glad she didn't do it because my heart couldn't take That's it. That's probably true. I think you're maybe more at peace with the decision when you can't see the complexity of the fallout. I mean, it also... I'm not at peace with anything. <laughs> it also begs the question of, like, it's the perfect foray into a second book, right? Yeah. Like, to see what would happen. I do want to talk very specifically about that last scene because Miranda Cowley Heller did an interview with The Guardian where she was talking about that scene that she wrote and she said it is a tiny bit ambiguous. Personally, I have a terrible antipathy for novels that don't tell you exactly what happens in the end, but the conversation about this really pleases me. I didn't decide who Elle was going to go with until two pages from the end. I had no idea. I just wrote it. For me, it was never a choice between two men. That was a way of articulating the idea. The novel is about her journey to the point of being able to make her own choice to become her complete self, free of the horrible guilt she's been carrying for decades. I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it that it's not really about the men like this is about Elle and like deciding who she wants to be for the rest of her life and this is a really odd thing to bring up at the end but Dixon was mentioned so much in those last sort of four to five pages Dixon of course being Wallace's best friend of her whole life and as we were racing to the end of the book and I was just turning these pages trying to work out when I was going to find out who she chose I was like why the fuck are all we're talking about right now is Dixon's barbecue and the relationship between Dixon and Wallace and I was like I don't know if I'm stretching too much but am I crazy for thinking that Elle watched Dixon and her mother interact a lot at that barbecue that night and were like they probably should have ended up together like Wallace having that final conversation with her being like you'll only know if you make the decision you'll only know if it's wrong if you made the decision but maybe Dixon was the man she never decided to meet and I was like why is he consuming so much airtime if not for this reason bless that brain Zara McDonald I think you're (laughs) absolutely correct and I think that's why they had the metaphor of the redesigned house yes like she loved that house so much the walls the wallpaper the design it was a house that was so Dixon and then he had this new partner come in and change everything and it wasn't Dixon anymore and I think it was probably for the two of them that Dixon and Wallace never became their true selves never owned up to that side of themselves and got together and it was that line that Wallace 
said to Elle at the very end where she said, there are some swims you do regret, Eleanor. The problem is you will never know until you take them. And I was like, she never took that Dixon swim. Like she never did. And we spent so much time talking about them towards the end. I thought maybe this is Elle actually trying to rewrite history in a book where we're told none of them are rewriting it. Mm. I think so many opinions about the book have been like, oh, she's just sort of making the same bad decisions as her parents and choosing the wrong partners like her parents did. But I'm like, maybe it also is her own way of rewriting history. Great point. Again, Zara. Gal, what a way to wrap up the book club for 2021. Zara McDonald just comes in with an absolute zinger of a You're observation. Me. We love it. Hey, guys, is it time to do our ratings it for is. this book? As you guys know, if you listen to the book club episodes every month, we rate every book out of five stars. Annabelle mm, Lee, yes. I'm going to start with you. What do you give this out of five? I'm going to give it a five. Hey. Because even though little things come out in this conversation where we're like, oh, that could have been better. When I was reading it, there was like not one point where mm. I was like, huh, that was weird or uncomfortable as a reader. Nah, loved it. Ten, ten out of ten, five out of five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the same at the end of the day. Zara McDonald. Yeah, I'd give it a five. I think I was ready to give it a five when I was like 100 pages in. Mm. I like adored it from the minute I picked it up. I thought it was like clever and pacey and complex and interesting and I would just recommend it to anyone so long as they can handle the content because, of course, it's heavy. Yeah, absolutely. I devoured it in 26 hours. It was so speedy. I did not check the page once to see where I was because I was thoroughly enjoying the entire process and I think that says a lot for a book when this is attached to our work. Like sometimes book club feels like work if you don't actually enjoy the book. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Five stars too. That makes it the best performing book that we've ever done. Wow. Does it? Yes. What, what? I thought we had another all five. I don't. I think Annabelle gave Daisy Jones and the Six a 4.85 something. Oh, you sorry, Daisy. <laughs> Dare I say, I mean, I hate to put a downer on this book. It's not my favourite book we've ever done in book club, but this, it's still a five. This is better than Daisy Jones for me. I, I loved agree. it so much. Interesting, guys. We cannot wait to hear your thoughts on this book, what you gave it as a star rating. Please come onto our Instagram account. It is at The Shameless Book Club. Comment on the post that will be up this morning and tell us what did you rate The Paper Palace. Other than that, thank you so much for listening to the December instalment of our book club, our final episode for the year. Next month, we have a really exciting book that we cannot wait to dive into to begin 2022. It is the brand new non-fiction book from best-selling Aussie author Trent Dalton, and it's called Love Stories. For about a month, Trent sat on a busy Brisbane street corner asking strangers for their best love stories. When he had about 150 stories under his belt, he thought, I'm going to write a book. And that he did. Here's a snippet from the blurb. A blind man yearns to see the face of his wife of 30 years. A divorced mother has a secret affair with a travelling priest. A widower miraculously finds a three-minute video recorded by his wife before she died. A renowned 100-year-old scientist ponders the one great earthly puzzle he was never able to solve. What is love? We think this will be the perfect summer read and we cannot wait to dive in. In the meantime, guys, keep up to date with us on social. Annabelle's currently doing an Instagram takeover (laughs) over on the main Shameless account if you want to check out that. Enjoy, guys. I'm going to be going wild. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Guys, thank you for an incredible 2021. It has been awesome. We love doing this book club with you all and we'll see you next year. Yeah, see you next year. Bye. Bye.
Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through it is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.